So Matthew chapter 16. We're only going to look at four verses today. Those would be Matthew 16, verses 1 through 4. It says, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came and tested, testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And he answered and said to them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites. Now, that should catch our attention right there. Jesus doesn't go around calling people hypocrites every day. So we have a clue here that there's something that's not pleasing to the Lord. Jesus says, hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he left them and departed. So on Sunday mornings, again, if you're visiting, on Sunday mornings we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew. We study through verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through the entire book, through the entire Bible. That's the way we do it here. We've been taking a leisurely but in-depth look at the life of our Lord Jesus Christ through uh, the Gospel of Matthew. And I've been really enjoying the study, to tell you the truth. We're over halfway now. I've been enjoying the study, and I hope you've been enjoying it too as we take this fresh look at our Savior, at Jesus Christ. And hopefully as we're doing it, what's occurring is we're falling deeper in love with him. That's, that's my heart. And if you're new this morning, and by way of reminder to the rest of us, Matthew, the purpose for writing his gospel is to present Jesus Christ as the king of the Jews. Matthew was a student of the word. He refers to or quotes Old Testament, the Old Testament more than any other writer in the New Testament. 129 times he quotes from the scriptures as he endeavors to reveal to the Jewish people that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And as we study the book of Matthew, I hope and pray that what it's, what it's accomplishing, not only you're falling deeper in love with the Lord, but it's stirring you to go deeper into the word. You know, don't you just love looking at everything Jesus did and, st- and said so that we might have a better understanding of him, so that we might know his heart, so that we might gain a greater understanding of what it is that he's called each of us individually to. Um, so in these verses, in Matthew 16, 1 through 4, the scene that's being described here for us is one of unbelief. And that unbelief is directed towards Jesus. That unbelief that's being directed towards him is be, being directed towards Jesus by, by people that should have known better. Honestly, there are people who have not trusted Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior because, you know, uh, they're ignorant of him. You know, they don't know anything about his life. They don't know anything about his miracles. They have absolutely no idea about what it is that he taught. And then there are others like these Jewish religious leaders who should have been the first to recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. 
that he in fact is the savior of the world, that he was the one promised from the fall, from the time of Adam and Eve, you know, in the Garden of Eden. These religious leaders, they should have known from the very first week of Jesus's public ministry, they should have joined in and they should have heralded him. They should have declared to everyone, this is the Messiah. This is the one that we've been waiting for. Join us in following him. But instead of doing what they should have done, here in Jesus's third year of his ministry, they not only have not become believers and followers of Jesus Christ, but, but they're actually, they've actually grown in their resistance and their opposition to him. They're resisting him, right? They're rejecting him and they're refusing to declare to others who and what he obviously is because the life that Jesus was living, the things that Jesus was teaching, you know, it was a threat to the religious leaders, you know? It was a threat to them. It was a threat to their man-made traditions. It was a, a threat to their twisted, legalistic interpretation of, of God's word. You know, what they had turned God's word into was unrecognizable to what God actually intended it to be. Jesus was a threat to their religious position. I mean, they enjoyed being, you know, seen as more holy, being seen as above the common man. He was a threat to their money-making operation that they turned the Jewish religion into. And you know what? Honestly, there are many people like this today who simply refuse to put their faith in Jesus. Not because there's a lack of evidence to support the claims of Christ. It's never an issue. Listen, it's never an issue of evidence. It's always an issue of will. Many people realize, you know, if, if I follow Jesus, if, if, if I place my faith and my trust in him, then I'll have to forsake a lifestyle that I'm currently enjoying. And I'll have to, to change and I'll have to turn from a sin that actually I'm not willing to turn from right now. It's always an issue of will. Well, Matthew tells us in verse 1, Then the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and testing him, asked that he would show them a sign from heaven. And we've seen this before, back in Matthew 12. And here again, the Jewish religious leaders, they come to Jesus, and they demand a miraculous sign from him. They demand that he perform a miracle but they're not asking for just any old miracle. No, they're asking for a miracle that can only come from heaven. If that wasn't enough, their demand that he perform this sign or miracle is a proof of who he claimed to be, uh, you know, and, and that's the promised Messiah. They wanted this sign from heaven, right? Something on the order of, of uh, Moses giving uh, bread from heaven. Moses sending darkness 
on the, the nation of Egypt except for uh, the area of Goshen. Elijah calling down fire from heaven. Joshua making the sun and the moon stand still there in the valley of Ajalon, right? They didn't want any old miracle like, you know, healing the sick or delivering, you know, people from demon possession, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, all of which, by the way, none of them could do, right? They wanted something from heaven. And we want to notice again, as they make this demand, their demand was not an honest one. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they were normally at odds with each other. The Pharisees were more orthodox in their belief, right? They believed in angels, they believed in spirits, and they believed in all of the Old Testament scriptures. They believed in the resurrection, and they believed in the miraculous. The Sadducees, on the other hand, they were the polar opposite. They didn't believe in signs. They rejected the supernatural, and they only believed in the first five books of Moses. They didn't believe in angels or spirits at all. And so normally these two groups, they would be at odds with each other. So when they come together to make a demand of Jesus for a sign, it wasn't for honest reasons. You know, they made this demand in order to test him, Matthew says. They weren't seeking reasons to believe in him. In fact, what they were doing was they were seeking an excuse not to believe in him. Outwardly, they were given, uh, giving this appearance that they were honest seekers, that they would consider right, the things that Jesus said and taught. They wanted to appear that they were willing to weigh the evidence, you know, to, to think about it, to give them an honest chance to win them over. But inwardly, Jesus knew that wasn't the case. And as Jesus looks at them, it's as if he says, what you appear to be outwardly and what I know you to be inwardly, those are two different things, right? Inwardly, you're trying to find fault with me. You're trying to, to find a reason to reject me, while outwardly you're trying to appear an honest seeker of the truth. Well, that's what an actor does. That's playing the hypocrite. And that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites in verse 3. We've seen the religious leader's method before. We've talked about it. We've looked at it. Where what they would do is they would just ask Jesus for more and more and, and more. No matter what, Jesus, what miracles Jesus would do for them, they wanted more miracles. They wanted more evidence. They asked for more miracles in hopes that one day Jesus would not or could not do what it is that they asked of him. And in their minds, that would give them a reason to reject him. They would say, you know, that's why we can't believe in him. You know, can't place our faith in him because we asked for this and he could not or he would not do it. You know, no, we can't believe in that guy. You know, personally, I find it interesting. <laughs> Even as Jesus is in the third year of his public ministry, they still can't find fault with him. 
right? They've been watching him closely. They've been looking for even the slightest hint of a fault every day for three years. And they still can't find a single fault to bring against them. And again, they looked and they looked. Believe me when I said, when I say that they looked so very hard to find something to justify their rejection of Jesus. I don't think anyone has ever actually examined as deeply and intimately the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, his teachings, the things that he did, his miracles. Nobody has looked at those things and examined them more closely than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. And still, they couldn't come up with anything to accuse him of. And this desire to find fault with him, you know, just any little fault, this desire to find fault with Jesus is actually going to continue right up to the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Later in the Gospels, we see this attempt. You know, one of the attempts that they, they uh, try to find fault with him is, is very near the end of his life, very near to the time that he's going to lay down his life for the sins of the world. The religious leaders there, they bring in this woman who was caught in the very act of adultery. You know the story. They bring her before Jesus and the crowd that was there with them in the temple. And, uh, you know, they set her there before him and they say to Jesus, now Moses and the law commanded us that such uh, should be stoned. But what do you say? And they said this in hopes that Jesus would teach or say something that would violate the law of Moses. And then they would have a reason to accuse him, right? A reason to reject him. I mean, they looked and they looked for something, for anything, but they found nothing because Jesus always did those things that please the Father. Well, Jesus is response to their demand for a miracle is threefold. Jesus' response to their request from a sign uh, from heaven, his first uh, response is found in verses 2 and 3. He says, it says, and he answered them, he answered and said to them, when it is evening, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be foul weather today for the sky is red and threatening hypocrites. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the time. The first response is that Jesus confronts their hypocrisy, right? He points out to them their ability to come to a proper conclusion regarding the weather based upon physical evidence. Based upon the weather patterns of the Mediterranean, when they saw a red sky in the evening, they properly concluded that it meant fair weather the following day. But when they saw the physical evidence of a red sky in the morning, again, they properly concluded uh, that it meant foul or stormy weather coming that day. So this is a rule of logic that's called inference. It's called deduction or deductive reasoning. Um, it's where you process logically the general evidence leading to a particular conclusion based on the facts, based on the physical evidence. So this deductive reasoning, the religious leaders were faithful to use 
at least in the most basic things of life, the most inconsequential things of life, the most mundane things of life. They applied that logic to what the weather would be like tomorrow, what the weather would be like today. And while they were willing to come to a proper conclusion of what the weather would be like today or tomorrow, they were unwilling to use the same logic to come to the proper conclusion about Jesus as the promised Messiah. Based upon all the physical evidence that God had provided for them. Well, you might say, what's the physical evidence? First of all, there's the fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament scripture. After the fall of Adam and Eve, God began to speak of a Savior that he would send into the world. One who would undo the unimaginable damage that occurred as the consequences of the sin uh, there in the garden. Right? Uh, One that would come into the world to save us from the consequences of that fall. Right? And among those prophecies concerning the Messiah are prophecies that he would be born into the world just as Jesus was. He would be born of a virgin just as Jesus was. He would be born of the city of Bethlehem just as Jesus was. Born of the tribe of Judah just as Jesus was. A descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and of David, the king, just as Jesus was. He would be divine, just as Jesus was. That he would be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silvers, uh, just as Jesus was. That he would be rejected in his first coming and be put to death. But not just any death, he would be crucified on a cross, just as Jesus was. By the way, that prophecy being crucified The prophecy of the Messiah being put to death on a cross was given before crucifixion was even invented. Do you realize that? Right? It's interesting to me, you know, that Jesus was born into a world during a time that Rome ruled the ancient world. And capital punishment during Rome's rule was carried out by means of crucifixion. I mean, think about it. If the Messiah came into the world at any other point in time, if he came into the world today, where would you find a country or a kingdom that is crucifying their criminals in order to put them to death? You know, nowhere. You wouldn't find it today. It doesn't happen anywhere. And before Rome, before Rome it didn't happen anywhere. But God knew when he would send the Savior He knew that crucifixion would be the means of capital punishment by which the Savior would be put to death. Prophesied a thousand years before crucifixion was invented. Not only would the Messiah be crucified, but he would be crucified between two criminals, just as Jesus was. That he would be buried in a rich man's tomb, just as Jesus was. That he would not stay in that tomb, but that he would raise from the dead three days after being dead. He would raise three days again, just as Jesus was. Many of you know 
the list of fulfilled prophecies regarding the Messiah and his first coming. You know, they go on and on and on. There are over 300 Old Testament prophecies fulfilled by Jesus, uh, proving that, in fact, he was the Messiah promised, right? 300 prophecies, over 300 predicting who the Messiah would be in Jesus' first coming. The rejection of the religious leaders, right, of the Old Testament witness, which is really uh, a rejection of the testimony of the Holy Spirit and the testimony of God himself, that Jesus was, uh, was the Messiah. It's, it's ludicrous to reject it, to overlook that. Jesus said, John 5.39, verse 41, uh, 5.39 through 41, Jesus said to the religious leaders, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life. And these are they which testify of me, but you're not willing to come to me that you may have life. And he goes on to say in that chapter, do you uh, do not think that I shall accuse you to the father? There is one who accuses you, Moses in whom you trust. For if you believed Moses, and he's speaking of the Old Testament scriptures there. That's a reference to the Old Testament. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. There's also the evidence which God has given us regarding Jesus' perfect, sinless life as a basis of faith in him. In addition, there's also the evidence of the miracles he did, prophesied in the Old Testament, which testify of his claims of being the Messiah. Again, you know, the blind were seeing, the deaf were hearing, the lepers were being cleansed, you know, the dead were being raised, and the religious leaders and anyone else for that matter need no more signs that Jesus is the Messiah, God's chosen one. They need no more signs than what has already been given. There was and still is changed lives as a sign going out from all directions from Jesus's life and ministry as people meet Jesus and come to him he changes their lives and in regards to the miracles which were a witness of his claims Jesus said if I do not do the works of my father do not believe me but if I do though you do not believe me believe the works that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Jesus also said, John 14, he said, Do you not believe that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak uh, on my own authority. But the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father in me. Or else believe me for the sake of the works themselves. Just in terms of sheer quantity and sheer quality of the miracles that Jesus did during his ministry, the Apostle John, he said that there were so many of them. If they were written one by one, I suppose that even the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Jesus declared to not allow that evidence to bring them to a proper conclusion regarding him as the Messiah could only be, attributed, uh, only be attributed to hypocrisy, to acting, right? 
to reject the witness of Scripture, to reject the witness of his life, to reject the witness of his miracles, to reject him with all that they knew of him, saw him do, heard him say, to reject him was just simply hypocrisy. Pretending to be willing to come to an honest conclusion about Jesus when I know in my heart no amount of evidence will sway me is simply hypocrisy, Jesus says. And that was the condition of these religious leaders in Jesus' day. That was their mindset. They were willing to properly judge every other area of their lives <clears throat> based on the evidence. But when it came to Jesus, they were not willing to do it. <clears throat> and there are a lot of people like that today. A lot of people like that in the world today. My mind is made up concerning Jesus, concerning Christianity. You know what? Concerning the Bible. Don't confuse me now with the facts. My mind's made up. You know what? That attitude's nothing new. The second response that Jesus had for these religious leaders and their demand for a sign, Jesus agrees to give them one further sign for their faith in him as a promised Messiah. But it's a sign of his choosing, not a sign of their choosing. And the sign that he promised to give them was the sign of Jonah the prophet. Jesus says in verse 4, A wicked and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. What Jesus is saying is, the sign that I'll give you will be the sign of my resurrection. And again, he's talking about his death on the cross for our sins, his burial, and his rising again from the dead three days afterwards. Jesus said elsewhere in Matthew, back in Matthew 12, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth following his death on the cross. That's the sign he offered them. Well, why does Jesus offer them that as a final sign? Why that one? Because there is no greater sign of God's wisdom. There is no greater sign of his love. And there is no greater sign of his power other than the death of his son on the cross for our sins and his burial and resurrection of his son from the dead three days later. And there is no greater demonstration of his power over sin, over death, and over the devil. That alone is the single greatest miracle and expression of the Father's heart to us. The third response Jesus has for these religious leaders is found in verse 4. Matthew says, He left them and departed. In essence, Jesus was saying, My death, burial, and resurrection is all the evidence anyone needs to place their faith in me as their Lord and Savior. In other words, if a person is willing to reject the scriptures, willing to reject Jesus' perfect and sinless life, 
reject his countless miracles, there's no further miracle that will impact that person. There's no further sign that you could demand of God for faith in his son that is greater than the sign uh, that he's already given. And the person that makes demands on God for a personal miracle, you know, before they place their faith in Jesus, is actually operating, you know, under the misguided idea that they can come up with a miracle or some type of evidence that is superior to the evidence that God has already supplied for us in putting our faith in Jesus Christ. You know, you've seen the crazy antics of some people in a public setting. You know, maybe it's in a classroom. Maybe it's in a, in a, a you know, a, a boardroom. Maybe it's around the dinner table at some family gathering. But you've seen it. You know, somebody gets up and, you know, they shout out. And maybe they're shaking their, their fist in the air. If God is real, let him smite me with a bolt of lightning right now. You know, I tell you, I, I got to confess. Sometimes I hear someone say something like that. I'm thinking, that would be so cool. You know, I mean, <laughs> Lord, do it. Right? You don't have to kill them. Just shake them up a bit, okay? Just, just teach them not to be so stupid to say something so dumb, right? You know, and don't judge me too harshly. I confess to you, I'm a work in progress, nothing more. I need your prayers, right? But as much as I would, uh, might quietly beg God to answer that person's request, just this one time, because, you know, that person walks away feeling vindicated, you know what? You know, feeling, you know, like, see, God isn't real. You know, I called upon God to smite me with lightning and nothing happened. You know what? Fortunately for that person, God's far more patient with them than I am. I'd give it to him, man. But uh, what Jesus is saying here is he's taken that off the table. You don't get to ask Jesus for a personal miracle of your own desire, right? You don't get to demand from God what evidence he will supply you in order for you to place your faith in the Son. God determines that. And it's an evidence of his love, actually, and of his wisdom that he does it, that he doesn't allow us to make demands and set our own terms for faith. There is no evidence that compares to the miracles and the evidence that God has already provided for us. The phrase in verse 3, the signs of the time, uh, it's a very interesting phrase. When Jesus refers to the signs of the time, it's a reference to what God is doing in human history. And one of the signs of the times at, at, at this time, during Jesus' day when he says this, one of the signs of the time was John the Baptist coming upon the scene and preaching repentance because the kingdom of God is at hand. That was evidence that God was injecting himself into human history. It was evidence that something of God was going on in the most obvious way. And Jesus rebuked them for not recognizing all of the fulfillment of Old Testament uh, prophecies and scriptures regarding his first coming. But I have to say, today in this room, 
today in this world, we are even more responsible to God than they ever were. Because not only do we have all the signs and evidence for faith in Jesus Christ that they had, right? The evidence of faith regarding Jesus' first coming, but we also have all the signs of God that he gave to us in his word that speaks of what the condition of the world would be like at the time of Jesus' return for his church. Let me just quickly share with you just some of the signs of of the times that reveal that God's hand is active in human history even today, revealing that Jesus' return for his church is drawing very near, right? From the perspective of heaven, Jesus' return is so very near, even at the door, the Bible says. For instance, the rebirth of the nation of Israel. For 2,600 years, students of the Bible have been holding on to this promise of Ezekiel that Israel would once again become a nation, that the Jewish people would once again be gathered together again in their own land. And after 2,600 years, May 14, 1948, Israel became a nation again. Never before in the history uh, of the human race has an ethnic uh, people gone without a homeland of their own that long. Most, most of the time, it's not more than a few hundred years before they've been absorbed, before they've been, um, you know, uh, what's another word for assimilated into that nation where they're just no longer an entity, right? The existence of the Jewish people, the existence of the nation of Israel, it's a modern miracle never heard of before. It's unprecedented in human history. There's also the evidence of Ezekiel uh, 38 and 39, which speaks of the geopolitical makeup of the world in the last days, just before Christ's return. It speaks of a major power uh, to the far north of Israel that will lead an invasion into uh, Israel in the last day. And you can go home, get yourself a world map, find on it Israel and draw a line due north, And you know what? That line will almost bisect Moscow. You know, we we have Russia today as a major military power in the world. And God said uh, it would be that way in the last days. And those of you that follow prophecy, we've not seen the saber rattling out of Russia like we've seen uh, in the recent past. And I'm not talking what, three, four, five years ago now, Crimea and Ukraine, I'm talking about now, right? Putin has never been more aggressive. He's grabbed hold of power, and all of Russia's might is now condensed in one man. I don't think there's anything or anyone, I certainly don't think uh, he fears America anymore. I think, you know what, he wouldn't think twice before he tried to launch an attack on the nation of Israel right now. Not at all. Russia has never been so wealthy or powerful in their entire history as they are now. 
You know, they have all of Europe over a barrel in terms of natural gas, natural gas supplies. And that's before the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was allowed to go forward by the Biden administration. We lived in Europe when Europe turned off the gas to, to uh, sorry, we lived in Europe when Russia turned off the gas to Europe during the winter. And you know what? It was rough. And I don't think, you know, they would hesitate. They did it once. Why not use that as a weapon again? You know what? Uh, Europe is at the mercy of Russia. All of the allies uh, that the Bible says will join this military coalition with Russia are in place. Iran is in place. Modern-day Ethiopia in place. Uh, Modern-day Turkey in place. Northern Sudan and Libya in place. All of the Muslim nations, right? And it's interesting to note which nations the Bible says will not join in that invasion of Israel. Egypt's not on the list. Jordan's not on the list. Saudi Arabia's not on the list. Uh, all of which historical enemies of Israel, but actually have a peace treaty with Israel today, right? But there's also Iraq and Syria not on the list. They're absent from that list, you know, from those that are going to join Russia in the attack. I don't know why. Maybe it's because they're so war-torn now that they no longer have an appetite for conflict. I don't know. When you look at what the Bible says the world will look like geopolitically in the last day, it's what we see today, you know? And it's all was spoken of 2,600 years ago. It's our reality. It's all in place today. Another evidence of what God has told us as the signs of the times would, would be what it would be like in the last days. The Bible says the last days, there would be a confederation of nations coming out of the old Roman Empire. And the Bible tells us, tells us that that would be the final world ruling empire coming out of Europe. In most of our lifetimes, we've seen the origin and we've seen the initiation and we've seen the development of the European Union. When you get into the politics of the EU, boy, it even gets really that much more interesting. You know, when you look at the nations that are strong in the EU and you look at what their agendas are versus the nations that are a drain on the EU, you get to look at how they're interacting and, and what their desire for the EU is. It gets really interesting. And then you play into all of this you know, I think it's very important as a student of the Bible, we need to consider the state of our nation. You know what? I think that our debt as a nation, which is very serious, will ultimately cause us to cease being the economic power, to cease being the, the economic center of the world. The Bible says that the economic uh, center of the world is going to move to Europe. And I tell you what, we're seeing the beginnings of that move right now, right? It's gonna move to Europe over, uh, sorry, under uh, this coming world leader identified in the Bible as the beast, as we more commonly refer to him, the Antichrist. You know, things don't have to be fully developed before he comes on the scene, 
but we'll be gone before he comes, uh, the Bible tells us. But I was in Austria when the euro was launched. And we moved to Europe when the euro was equal to 80 American cents. It was a lesser value than the dollar. Then it flipped. The, er the euro became worth more than the dollar in 2002. And then it reached its peak in value in 2008, where the euro was worth $1.60, right? Because of the weakness of the dollar, something is going on that we as Americans and uh, financial people around the world never thought we would ever hear. And that is significant and powerful blocks of the world are talking seriously about moving away from the dollar as the international currency and moving to the euro, right? If you don't understand why that's significant for our country, let me just give you a simple example, okay? Oil is priced today so many dollars per barrel, right? OPEC and others has, have been discussing changing that to so many euros per barrel. You know, in a worst case scenario right now, in the worst case scenario, to buy oil, all we have to do as a nation is just print more money. And granted, that's not a good idea, I get it. But if they switch to euros per barrel, barrel, we would have to manufacture some product. We would have to make some good and sell it on the world market, right, to buy oil, to generate revenue to buy oil. And the problem with that, it presents the problem for us as a nation. It's a problem because our manufacturing sector of our nation has been in decline for decades now. And then you add in... Uh, to the equation inflation and you know America will be brought to her knees will no longer be uh, influence in the world things are unfolding just as God has revealed in the Bible and the Bible declares in the last days before Jesus's return mankind would have the ability to place a mark on every man woman and child in order to buy and sell right it would it would bring about a cashless society Europe is almost totally cashless. And I'll tell you, as a resident of Europe for a long time, it's actually quite nice. I never have to remember to pay a bill. It's paid automatically. You know, I never have to carry cash. I'm never going to get robbed. All I do is I present my card. It's kind of nice, right? The technology to do this, though, mark every man, woman, and child, wasn't around when I got saved back in 1979. Now the technology is not only present, you know, thanks to companies like Verichip, you know, which has developed an injectable identification chip that can be inserted under the skin of a human that will provide biometric ver uh, verification, right? But since the introduction of the Verichip in 2004, there's greater technology that can do far more than just mark everyone in the world in order to buy and sell. There's technology that now that tracks you every place you go. There's technology now that can record everything you say. And you think I'm kidding? Have you ever noticed ads on your phone? You know, you get ads on the phone of something that you just recently spoke about. You know what, it was brought to my attention when we returned to the States. You know, believe me, I'm not a conspiracy kind of guy. 
I mean, you throw a conspiracy at me, I'm just like, yeah, whatever. I don't have time for it. I'm moving on. Uh, I'm, I'm not into conspiracy theories. But I noticed when Tina and I started talking about, you know, we need a new bed. All of a sudden, anybody that manufactures a mattress, I got their ad on my phone. You know what? You think it's coincidence? You can be walking, the technology is present today. You can be walking by a store and all of a sudden get a text regarding a special promotion from that store, you know, to entice you to come in and spend money. In other words, they're tracking you. The technology is here. And we may not recognize it as such as the Bible lays it out because it's part of our daily lives. It's all part of the conveniences that we enjoy in life. The Bible describes the condition of the world in the last days, describes the, the social and moral conditions, that there would be a breakdown in the family unit, right? That young people would no longer have respect for their parents or the elders of society. There would be widespread acceptance of homosexuality and there would be lawlessness. People calling light darkness and darkness light. People embracing evil and condemning good. There will also be widespread violence along with a departure of the things of God. Right? You look at the nations that are decades long in, in revolution. Millions and millions of people have died as a result of factions fighting one another. Just as the Bible said, it's commonplace for us today. It's so commonplace today, those conflicts don't even make the news. The seemingly unstoppable rise in our nation of gangs, and more recently, anarchists. You know, the Bible talks about it. We have prison populations that are so great, we're we forced to, to release uh, criminals back to the street. And all of this, the Bible says that people will become even more selfish, even more self-centered, even more addicted to pleasure and money. The Bible says in the last days, the natural affection of many will grow cold. And honestly, I can't think of a more terrible example of the natural affection and the natural love of a mother and father for a child growing cold than the widespread abortion that takes place in our nation and all around the world. And guess what? If you don't know it, our nation funds most of the abortions all around the world. Your tax dollars fund it. It's signs of the times. And the Bible talks about increasing religious deception in the last days. I mean, today you have so-called Christians who refuse, they will not acknowledge the Bible as the authoritative, inspired word of God. And you see famines and diseases that the Bible says will grow increasingly worse as we rush headlong into the last days. You know what, today there are drug-resistant diseases that we never even heard of decades ago. It's crazy. Diseases that do not respond to any antibiotic therapy that we have. You know, can you remember ever hearing about an antibiotic cocktail to fight a disease? Boy, early last year, that's what we heard all about. And there are diseases that we throw cocktails at that are 50 times stronger than any antibiotic we have. doesn't even touch the disease. You know what? It's all what the Bible talks about. Hey, Gary, 
It's not a very perky sermon this morning. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I could go on and further depress you even more. But the point is that everything is exactly as God said it would be just before Jesus raptures his church. There are no more prophecies. Yeah, there are no more prophecies regarding the return of Jesus then, then uh, you know, there are more prophecies regarding the return of Jesus than there were for his first coming. And there are no more prophecies to be fulfilled, prophetically speaking, in regards to Jesus' return before he can return and set up his kingdom here on the earth. Everything has been fulfilled. Everything is in place. We have more evidence for faith today than they did during Jesus' time. And Jesus said that they had more than enough. What I'm trying to say today, what I'm trying to, to say to you this morning, is it's time for faith in Jesus Christ. It's time for trusting in Him. It's time to draw close to Him. It's time to live for Jesus Christ like we've never have before. And if you're not a believer here today, if you're not a believer watching online today, you know what? It's time for you to turn to him and place your faith in him and receive forgiveness for your sins. It's time to surrender your life to him and ask him to be your Lord and Savior. Most of the world today most of the countries in the area of the world that is specifically spoken of in the Bible, and let's just be honest, most of Truckee today will live out today like the Bible doesn't even exist. As if God never spoke these things. As if these prophecies have never been given to us. As if the greatest concern in life is what's the weather going to be like today or tomorrow? It's not time to be asking for more signs from God. We have signs and evidence enough. Now, I know, you know, that may not be the opinion of many people in the world today. You know, they look at things a little bit differently. You know, and maybe some of you here today don't agree that we have signs enough. Maybe you look at Jesus a little bit differently. But, you know, that's what God says. You have enough evidence. There's enough. No more is needed. He's given us the greatest amount of evidence. God would say to everyone today who's willing to listen, you have signs and miracles enough. God has given enough evidence and has done enough miracles for the honest heart, for the seeking heart, for the sincere heart, for the true heart. He's given each and every one of us enough evidence to place our faith in Him, and not only that, but then to live for Him with, without holding anything back. You know, this is a time to live for Jesus with a whole heart, with a singularly focused 
heart, right? Now is the time for us as believers to live what we believe. Now is the time to run the race to win. If you're not a believer today, now is the time for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. You have no excuses. You know, when I share with people, oftentimes I tell them, listen, you're going to stand before God, and on that day, I'm either going to be your best friend or I'll be your worst enemy. Because when you stand before God and you say, oh, hey, I never knew, I'll stand up and say, not true, I told you. But if you receive Christ and you stand before him, I'll be your best friend because, you know, that's, that's Gary. That's my best friend. He told me about Jesus Christ. and I gave my life to him. And now I'm going on into the kingdom of glory. You know what? Now is the time. If you're not a believer, you have nothing to lose and everything to gain. You know what I gave up to come to Christ? Nothing that was good for me everything that was destroying me, everything that was killing me, everything that was destructive, now is the time to take a step. Now is the time to confess your sin to God, to give him praise and to thank him for sending his son into the world to die on the cross for your sins. Now is the time to believe the evidence that Jesus died on that cross, was buried and rose again three days later. Now is the time to acknowledge that Jesus is the only way of salvation and without him, you'd be lost. Now is the time, if you're not a believer, if you're here watching online, now is the time to relinquish control of your life to him and give your life to God so that he can use it in the most blessed way possible so that he can use your life for his glory and his eternal purposes. Now is the time to begin a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. You know what? Don't worry about what others will think of you if you do. Worry about what God will think of you if you don't. Right? It's the time for all of us to act. Not just the unbeliever, but believers. It's the time for all of us to act. For all of us to give Jesus the place in our life, the place in our heart that he deserves. That is what the signs of the times are telling us. That is what the signs of the times would communicate to every single person in this room and to everyone watching online. And you know what? I just leave you with this. Exhortation. We need to take heed to the signs of the time, lest we play the hypocrite. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that salvation isn't something that we have to grope about in the dark. But Lord, you've given us evidence, clear evidence. You've given us the witness of scripture. You've given us the witness of the apostles dying instead of recanting that they made up some lie, but dying for the truth, giving their life. Lord, you've given us countless people that lives have been already touched by you and have been changed, have been altered because of faith in you. And 
but I just want to give an opportunity. If you're not a believer here today, if you're watching online and you're not a believer, you know, salvation is just a prayer away. It's not any special words. It's not anything that you necessarily have to repeat or join a church or a club or anything like that. It's just from the sincerity of your heart, confessing that you've fallen short, that you've sinned, that you've failed to live up to God's standard, as we all have. And then just confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord and believing that he died on that cross for your sins, that he was dead, buried, and resurrected the third day. And by coming to God in humility and just saying, Father, forgive me for my sins. Come into my life. Give me the power to live for you. If you'll do that, Lord, I'll give you my life from here on out. I'm sorry for what I've made of my life. Lord, make my life now what you desire it to be. Use me for your glory. And if you'll do that, the Bible promises you'll be a new creation. Father, I just pray for anybody that may have prayed a prayer like that, that you just minister to them now. You just let them know that you have responded to their cry of, for forgiveness. You've forgiven them. You've washed them, whether they feel it or not. Just allow them to just receive it as the true word of the gospel. They're forgiven. They're a new creation. Give them the power to walk with you. For the rest of us, Lord, as believers, give us the power to up our game, Lord, to again run the race to win to live for you like never before, to give you the place in our life that you deserve, Lord. Forgive us for compromise. Forgive us for neglect. Forgive us for pigeonholing you to a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Or Forgive us, Lord, for just not making you everything that we are. Give us the power to correct it now, Lord. Give us the power to live for you. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.